As we continue our journey through Exodus, if you would open your Bibles, we will begin in chapter 33, um, verse 12. I'll read all the way through chapter 34, verse 9, and then we will um, skip to uh, verse 29 and read through the end of the chapter. So we'll begin in Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come up with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in the front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassion and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebelliousness and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. 
When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and spoke to them, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So this is, we've been preaching through the book of Exodus, and if you are following, reading along in your Bible, this is actually the second to last sermon we will be preaching on Exodus, which I thought I would just mention because I know a few of you like to read along, and there are um, still six chapters left after chapter 34 in Exodus, but five of them are recounting Israel rebuilding the tabernacle, and they are exact replicas of the chapters before about the tabernacle, except that it's saying that the Israelites did all of the stuff they were supposed to do. So we are not going to walk through all of those, but next week we will preach on chapter 40, and then we will be looking at some other things. It's always a blessing, I feel like, as we come to the end of one of these series we've spent we did a few other things in the middle, but it's been 11 months that we've been in Exodus, and so I'm excited to turn, have my Bible fall, fall open to another part. But with that said, let's turn to the Lord and pray as we hear from his word. God and Father, I give you thanks that you are a God who draws near to us and speaks to us. I pray, Lord, as we hear from your word, that you would be speaking to us as sinners, that we might know your ways. Pray that you might be working and speaking through me, though I am a sinner, as I proclaim your word. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So at the end of his life, the famous evangelist Billy Graham, who some of y'all might have heard of, but he was asked if he had any regrets. And it was a really striking interview, because while he said that he certainly did not regret his calling as an evangelist or what he had done with his life, there were things that he regretted about the way that he had ended up approaching his life. Um, he listed a couple. He said one of his regrets was that he would spend more time with his family if he could do it over again. All of the constant traveling and being gone for crusades um, did hurt his relationship with his kids. Another was that he said he would invest a lot more heavily in his relationships at the local church, as again, traveling all the time, he felt like he had really missed out on that. But the third thing he mentioned as a regret was the one I found myself thinking about this morning. He said this, I'll just quote him, he said, I would also spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for others. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but to apply its message to my life. Now, the reason that regret is so striking is because this is Billy Graham, right? This is, you know, millions of people came and heard him preach the gospel. He's probably the most famous Christian minister of the last, for sure of the 
last hundred years. But he says that somehow that pales next to this regret he has that he did not spend enough time experiencing the presence of God. That's really what these two chapters in Exodus are about. Experiencing God's presence. Israel has just failed in a major way in the wilderness. And Moses is trying to figure out how to lead Israel while also seeking God's mercy and preparing to take possession of the promised land. But what Moses focuses on in this text is not those practical concerns. What he focuses on is a desire to know and experience the presence of God. And that's deeply necessary for us as well. Far too often we as Christians spend our time discussing the things we're supposed to do. There's so many things that we're supposed to do. And many of the questions I get asked about what it means to be a Christian are about the stuff that we do. But before any of that, we also need to attend to God's presence. All of that that I've just said is also starting to get ahead just a little bit. So let's back up and start in our text and talk about um, this story. And the first thing that we see in this story is a reminder of the necessity of God's presence. The necessity of experiencing God's presence. Everything else that we might do for the kingdom is a lost cause if God does not go with us. So if you haven't been with us, here is Israel's situation. They, on the one hand, are preparing to march into Canaan, um, to take this promised land that God has offered them. Um, We know, if you know how the story plays out, they don't actually go in and take possession because they're afraid and they turn back. But they don't know that at this moment. They think that they're about to go in and do this, and God has told them to go in and do this. But Israel is also under God's judgment. Because just a little while ago, they built this golden calf and turned aside to false gods. And so, well, um, God has said that he will give them victory, his presence is also withdrawn from the camp. The, the cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire that has traveled with Israel all through the wilderness has disappeared. And so Israel is in this place of uncertainty, where on the one hand, they feel they have this task from God to go take the promised land. But on the other hand, he seems absent. And that is exactly the issue that Moses brings before the Lord. If you start in verse 12 of chapter 33, Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. Which is to say, you're telling me the job I have to do, but I don't know if you are going with me. Verse 13, then he says, If you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. So more than that, he says, God, I don't need to just know that you're with me. I need to know you. I need to understand who you are. Moses is identifying the core issue for Israel in this moment, which is that, God, we need to know and experience the reality that you are with us as we go. And God responds by promising his presence. Verse 14, he replies, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So God is promising not to leave his people alone, but Moses is not done pressing the point. If you pick up in verse 15, Moses replies to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face 
of the earth. So we might wonder why Moses says this, because God has literally just said, yeah, my presence will go with you. And Moses then replies by saying, but no, your presence needs to go with us. And the reason for that is because Moses is rightly recognizing that this is really essential. Notice the the questions he asks God. First, he talks about God's presence with him. He says, on what basis can I lead Israel, your people? Like, what business do I have leading your people? And the answer is only if you are with me do I have any business doing this. And then he he asks, "How, how will the nations, when they look at Israel... Know that they're your people. How will they, Israel be any different from the other nations? The answer again is only if you and your presence are with us. So Moses prays again for God's presence and God promises his presence again. He says to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and know you by name. Now we're going to pick up because there's more that's going to come forth in the story. But we need to just recognize right there that Moses is right in this text. That without God's presence, everything is lost. That is a truth that I think we so easily forget. God's presence is our only hope for the success of living as human beings as he's called us to in this world. I mean, you think about all the stuff we're called to. We are called in the first place to just work and live as human beings— We have jobs, whether outside or within the home. We have, many of us have children that we're raising. We have a house to keep up. And, you know, we have neighbors and all of these kind of commitments just as human beings. And not only that, but we're also given all of this work of the kingdom. We are called to serve others and build up the church and obey God's commands and share Jesus. And all of that stuff we are supposed to be doing. Christianity would call us to do all of that work. And it's all good, but that work so often distracts us from the necessity of experiencing God's presence. When you think about those spiritual practices that help us experience God, right? Gathered worship of the saints, spending time in scripture, praying, silence, and listening to God, fellowship with other Christians where you're seeking to discuss and grow in God's word, Those are the practices that are meant to help us experience God's presence, to know that he's with us and to come to know him better. And what's the main reason that we struggle, or that I struggle, to to do those things the ways that we should? It's how busy we are, which is another way of saying all of the work that we have to do. And that betrays that we have things in the wrong order. I mean, I think about like, like raising kids, which I know not all of us are in that place, um, but I'm, it works for other things, and it's one of the places I think about this a lot. There is a lot of stuff to do in the process of raising kids. There is school and homework and activities, and they need to be fed and clothed and kept alive and from killing each other. And, and there's all this relational stuff where you need to like talk with them and listen to them and know what's going on in their lives. There's a lot of stuff that we need to do. But all of that stuff is worthless if God doesn't show up. That's the other reality that you have to confront as a parent often. That, that in the first place, just in general, right, no amount of good parenting can guarantee a good outcome with your kids. 
And especially as Christians, if we want children to grow up knowing the Lord and following after him in a way that's faithful and profound from the heart, God's going to have to move in them to do that. I, there's no like checklist of parenting activities I can engage in that's going to force that to happen. And that means that I cannot let the work of parenting crowd out the need to experience God's presence with me and working through me as I parent. Without him, no matter how hard I work, it's worthless. And that means that rather than having an attitude that says that I have all this work to do, therefore I just don't have time to experience the presence of God, my attitude instead needs to be, look at all this work I have to do. I need to experience the presence of God. The more stuff I'm responsible, the more I need to make my first priority, seeking to know God, to know that he's with me, and be near to him. That is what Moses understands in these verses, that he has so much work to do, leading God's people and conquering the promised land. But he essentially says here at the beginning of our text, God, I need to know that you are with me and experience your presence with me, or there's no value in any of it. The thought of trying to do it without knowing your presence is crazy. And so he seeks to know the Lord. Or as the psalmist reminds us in one of the songs that Israel sang every year as they went up to the temple, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those who love. Which is to say that while we do have this work to do, we need the Lord to move and be present. And if he isn't, it's all vanity. So that's the first idea in this story, just to say we need to experience God's presence in our lives. But as the story goes on, we might, it helps us answer a second question, which if you're like me, maybe you think, okay, yeah, that sounds good. What does that mean? <laughs> like, what does it actually feel like? What are we talking about when we say experiencing God's presence? I think we also start to see in this text the meaning of God's presence, what it means to experience and be in his presence. And really, as the story develops, we see it means two things. First, it means that we are given a vision of God's glory. We experience God in a way that gives us a vision for God's glory. If you pick up the story in verse 18, Moses has just asked God for his presence, and now he adds the second request. He says, now show me your glory. That glory of the Lord language, we use it a lot. It pops up a lot in scripture. What does that mean? One way to think about it, the Hebrew word kavod that is translated glory literally means heaviness, weightiness. And so one of the ways to imagine what it means when we say that God is glorious is to say that like an object has mass and that mass actually affects the world around it. And normally we don't see it, but when we're talking about something truly weighty, like a planet or a star, we see that, that gravity, that weightiness that kind of pulls the world around it in. We are drawn down to the earth by its presence. We just feel, you know, it actually pulls us down into itself. And I think that something like that is one way for us to imagine what Scripture is talking about when it describes the glory of God. 
which is to say that we know the kind of weight and significance of God in a way that actually pulls us towards him, that actually bends the universe around him. So Moses asks for this experience of glory, and then God promises it. We're going to skip verse 19 and come back to it in a minute. And then in verse 20, he says, But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So Moses is asking to see God's glory, and God says, I will answer that request, but, but we got to be careful here because that's dangerous. And so here's what God promises then. In verse 21, he says, There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So you're probably wondering, like, Eric, when it says that he sees his back but not his face, like, theologically, what does that mean? And I have no idea, <laughs> right? Like, like, obviously, God does not have a body, and nobody really knows. You know, this is metaphorical language because it's the only language you can use to describe an experience like this, right? It's not like I'm regularly, you know, speaking out of caves and seeing God in my life. And so what exactly is happening here theologically is unclear. But what seems to be the case is that God is giving Moses a glimpse of his greatness and his weightiness, but it's still a kind of like an oblique angle because it's like, it's like the shadow of his passing or somehow, you know, like his retreating presence because even that is, you know, is, is, is so incredible and any more than that, and Moses would be consumed. So Moses goes and God has him make more stone tablets and then God hides Moses in a cave and he does what he just promised. In Exodus 34, 5, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name the Lord. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute, about what exactly God reveals about himself. We should just pause first and acknowledge that that first part of experiencing God's presence means experiencing God's glory in a way that is kind of like Moses's. I do not mean that we need to seek to have an experience literally like Moses's. This is really unique in the Bible. No other human figure in the whole Bible has an experience quite like this, right? Where God somehow passes by and they see his back. But we need to cultivate a, a faith that opens us up to experiencing something like this weightiness of God. I think, think about... You know, if it's like gravity, we all theoretically know gravity. Uh, you know, we understand that it's happening. We understand that if, you know, you drop something, it's going to fall. Maybe if you really paid attention in high school, you remember, right, you know, it accelerates objects at the rate of 9.8 meters per second squared or whatever. We, we know about gravity. But like a few months ago, we, um, or my family got to visit the Grand Canyon and if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, you might not realize this, but while there's a few observation posts, like mostly, you can just walk up to the edge of the thing. And there's no fence, there's, you know, there's no like barrier, you just walk up and you're like, if I took two more steps, I would be dead. And when you're standing there looking out at the Grand Canyon and you've got this like cliff drop right in front of you, in between looking over your shoulder to make sure the kids stay back, like 
you feel gravity in that moment in a different way, right? Like, you know, I go around all the time knowing it, but, but I'm there, and I suddenly just, like, I, like, it was like I almost feel, my, you know, the, the earth pulling me downward as I look over that precipice. And that kind of experience is what we are called to have of the glory of God. Not just knowing in theory that he is great and awesome and glorious, but, um, but talking about, not just talking about him like gravity, right? I think that's so often what we do. We talk about God's glory, you know, in this way that's kind of abstract and, you know, you can do math with it, but you don't really feel it. But experiencing God's presence is about really opening yourself and taking the time to experience that weight in a way that draws you in and draws you down. We're called to seek after that kind of vision of God's glory. But then what's remarkable about Moses' experience is that even as he asks to have this vision of the glory of the Lord, what he is given is also a vision of God's love. He's given a vision of God's love. So first look at verse 19, which is actually really remarkable within the context of Exodus. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So here's here's the thing you have to notice, and we've talked about this a number of times in Exodus because it's significant in the book, but so when it says the word Lord and it's all caps, that is God's proper name, which is Yahweh, I am. And, um, and the thing to realize about that is that way back in Exodus 3, while that is used in a sense sort of like a proper name for God, it's a shortened version of God saying, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. Like, that's what you're thinking about if you've read the book of Exodus and hear the Lord say, I am. And so he says, I will proclaim my name, I am, in your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so what he seems to be doing here is saying, I will be who I will be, and who will I be? I will be the one who has mercy on those I choose to show mercy. And there's two things that are happening there at the same time. One, it is stressing God's sovereignty in mercy, which is to say that his love is a free choice rather than something forced on him. That part of it is important in this story because he's stressing to Moses that it's not like Moses can pray really hard and then God's going to have to have mercy to Israel. But on the other hand, it's also stressing that compassion and mercy are fundamental to who God is. When God says, I am, that means, according to this verse, that part of what he's saying is, I am compassionate. I am merciful. And we're supposed to hear that in his words. And that's actually why another striking thing about this verse, in verse 18, Moses prays the Lord, show me your glory. And then what God says here, you'll notice, is he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So somehow the glory of the Lord that he's going to show is this goodness that he shows in his compassion and mercy. And all of that is then setting up what happens in chapter 34. So God passes by Moses and declares who he is as he passes by. And if you start in 34, verse 6, it says that he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. So I am, I am the compassionate and gracious, and gracious God, slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now it goes on, and we're going to come to the last part in a minute because it's the part that some people are kind of like, what? But, <coughs> but we need to appreciate what he's saying here. He's saying, I am, I am this. I am compassionate and gracious, which is what we just talked about. I am slow to anger, meaning patient, right? That we constantly do things that should provoke God's anger and he is patient with us. I am abounding in love and faithfulness. I have so much love in me that it's overflowing. I maintain love to thousands and I am the one who forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. He uses three different words for sin there. Really stress like, no, I'm forgiving all of it. God is saying this is who I am. And then the rest of verse 7, because this can feel a little jolting after all of that, but we need it to understand what's going on. He says, yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So what is going on with that at the end of this declaration of God's love? Well, first, we need to realize, as we've said, that this is happening at a certain point in Israel's story. And so Israel built a golden calf and turned aside, and God threatened judgment, and Moses is coming and praying on behalf of Israel for their forgiveness. And within that context, here is what this verse is saying. It is saying, it's trying to stress two things at once. It is trying to say that God is gracious and quick to forgive and loving, and that is setting up the fact that God is going to forgive Israel. But he is also stressing that that does not mean that he treats sin lightly. That is the mistake we can make if we don't have that last part of verse 7, as God identifies himself. That he's saying, I am unbelievably gracious and loving and will forgive sin. I do that, he does that ultimately in the story of scripture by the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf and suffering the just punishment of our sins himself. But that does not excuse sin. It does not mean that sin is okay. It does not remove the reality that it's destructive and that we need to repent and turn from it. Moses gets that in verse 9 when he responds to this self-identification. He prays, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. What Moses is doing there is saying, Lord, I acknowledge and repent of sin. I'm not making light of it, but because you are a gracious and forgiving God, forgive us all the same. Here's what that means for us. Experiencing God's presence means that we need to be experiencing God's love. Not just his sort of awesome, weighty glory, but his love for us. But when we talk about experiencing God's love, I think... There's a problem because there's two different things that people mean when they do that, and one of them is good, but the other one is really problematic. And let me try to just paint a picture of that <coughs> like this. Um, <clears throat> I'm married, and my wife loves me, and I am a sinner. There are times that I sin in ways that hurt her or frustrate her or wound her because of my issues. And imagine two different ways I might respond, given all of that, that I am a sinner, but that my wife does love me. I might respond like this. I might come to her, and she's hurt and angry, and what I might say 
is, babe, you just need to stop being angry. I mean, you know, you love me, and you're supposed to forgive me. So, like, what's the big deal here? You know, just don't, don't worry about it. Stop caring about my issues. Everybody's got them. Just chill out. Now, A, my wife should punch me if I did that. <laughs> but, but the reason is because notice what I'm doing. I said, okay, I have sin, and you love me. What I'm going to do is use your love as an excuse to say my sin is no big deal. What's the, the proper response, right? If you're not a fool in your marriage, what would you do instead in that moment? Is You would come to your wife instead and say, Babe, I am sorry. That was really wrong. And I'm a jerk. And I don't, I don't deserve your forgiveness. But out of your love, would you please forgive me and show me mercy? The only way to actually experience forgiveness is to move through that process where you acknowledge the weight of your sin and then you ask for the gift of love in response to it. And that is how it works with God's love. Moses recognizes Israel's sin and he does not try to paper over it. He does not try to pretend like it's not a big deal. Instead, he confesses it and then seeks mercy. And that's what it means for us to experience God's love as well. Not to adopt this posture that says, well, God is gracious and loving, so we're cool, I'm cool. But instead to adopt the posture of a sinner who acknowledges our failures and then comes to God and experiences his mercy in response. Here's what that looks like practically. It means taking time to confess our sins and then apply God's love to ourselves. That's two steps and you need both of them. But first, taking time confess our sin. Taking time um, daily, probably. I, every morning as part of my prayer time, I just try to sit and name some areas that I have sinned in the last day, or already that morning. And, um, and, the, and I mean really name them. Like, that's the big part of confession. It's not to be like, oh Lord, I'm proud and I'm angry and I'm greedy and I'm selfish. Amen. You know, I mean, there's this way we can just kind of list stuff. But to say like, Lord, like, I... Um, got really angry yesterday, and I really have let anger consume me in some ways, and I seek out opportunities to be angry, and out of that anger, I wound people, and I say hurtful things, and I treat people as less than they're supposed to be. Confessing and naming that sin, and then, and this is more important, right, is, is to, after you have confessed that sin, apply the gospel to it. Apply the grace and love of God to it. To say, that is true, but Jesus, you have paid for that. And that is covered, and it doesn't count against me anymore, and it is forgiven, and instead I have Christ's righteousness and God's love and welcome. Apply that truth to yourself. And in that moment, what you will do is actually experience the loving presence of God. I mean, it's not magic, and there are times that are dry, but there are mornings when, when I sit and, and feel the weight of my own failure or weakness, and then feel the weight of God's love covering over that, and there are tears in my eyes as I'm sitting at my desk in the morning, because that actually gives you a taste of that kind of gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love presence that God shows to Moses. So that's what it means to experience God's presence, his glory and his grace. And we need to experience that because of one last thing we notice in this story. 
passages that as we experience God's presence, we actually come to have the power of God's presence at work in our lives. The power of God's presence. If you skip ahead to verse 29, Moses comes down from Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hand, and he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. This is, again, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but apparently Moses' face is glowing because of this close encounter he had with God's glory. And it's freaking Israel out. In verse 30, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. <laughs> which, which, again, is just understandable in many ways. But so what happens, Moses veils his face, but then over the coming months, you get this striking pattern to how Moses ministers to Israel as he prepares them to build the tabernacle and proclaims God's law. If you start in verse 33, it says that when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded him, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So what's going on in those verses is that God, Moses is experiencing God's presence, and somehow, again, this, this is the only place in the story, you, you know, in the Bible, you get this exact thing happening, but his face is glowing, radiant with God's presence. And then he goes out while his face is uncovered and radiant and proclaims God's word to Israel and leads them. And because of that, somehow it, the glory of God is shining through Moses, giving him power to lead. And then he veils his face again until he goes back into God's presence. The New Testament picks up that image in 2 Corinthians. Listen to how the Apostle Paul frames it in chapter 3. He says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, by that he's talking about Moses' ministry, I mean, the law is good, and God's work in the Old Testament is good, but it's not the end goal. Ultimately, God's law only leaves Israel condemned, and they need Jesus to save them. So the ministry of death written in tablets of stone. But if that, um, if that came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, because Moses didn't keep glowing forever, right? And then he says, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious. So he's saying, if this ministry to Moses, right, where he beholds God from this cleft in the rock, if his face somehow shined with glory, won't the work of the Holy Spirit now in Jesus Christ do something even more glorious in us? If we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, God's presence living in us. We're united with God's glory and love and then notice how Paul applies that, if you keep reading in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We should be very bold. Why? Verse 13, First, because we're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. We're not covering over the glory, but instead, in verse 18, he says, here's what's happening now. He says, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
So Paul's saying, here's what happens now in this story. That we, through the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus, we get to experience God's presence in a way that is somehow more real and more profound than Moses and the ancient Israelites did. And we are called, first of all, out of that, to contemplate the Lord's glory. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about experiencing God's presence. We're called to spend time with God, contemplating his glory in terms of growing in our understanding of him, growing in just our experience of his nearness to us, working through those things. We do that, and then what happens is we start to be changed into his image in ever-increasing glory, which is to say that God is increasingly, as we experience his presence, shining through our lives. And that is what should make us very bold. Because there's a real sense in which as we experience and grow in our knowledge of God. And it's important to say, Paul's using the language of growth, right? This is a lifelong process of growing in knowing and experience God. But as that happens, we actually start to shine more and more with the glory and power of God in our lives. I remember as a little kid in church, one of the songs that we would sing is, This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, which is a a fine song. Um, But I think as a kid, I often had the wrong image of what that was about. And it was maybe like fostered as I spent a lot of time um, in church growing up through it. I think I had this idea that the light was sort of like the light of me being good (laughs) and working really hard and, you know, and being a good Christian person. And my job was like, if I kind of you know, like I could kind of make myself start to like catch fire and give off heat and give off light. And, um, and the problem with that is that I'm really bad at that. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, especially on my bad days, I'm more like a black hole, right? Than, you know, than a light that's, that's shining. But, but in so much of the rhetoric of like, go be on fire for Jesus, maybe that was, you know, as a teenager after I wasn't done singing that song and, and moving forward, I think that was the way I would think. But the thing is, the biblical image is not that I am the light in that sense. Rather, God is the light, and my job is to show him forth. When we talk about being a light to the world, it's not that, like, I'm a candle in a dark room, and I've got to sort of make myself catch on fire to give off light. It's instead that, like, I am a door in a dark room, and on the other side of that door, because the Holy Spirit indwells me and God lives in me, is the blazing, you know, bright room of the kingdom of God. And so rather than, like, making myself ignite, what my job to do is to be that door and start to crack open and let in the light from the room beyond. The key thing to recognize in that image is that if that's the sort of light we're giving off, then that means that it is not my job to make myself, you know, really bright and hot. Rather, it is my job to, to spend time with that light of God and then open myself so that through me, it can begin to shine in the world. And the great news about that is that that means that it's more like me getting out of the way of God's glory than it is me managing to really, you know, burn it myself And that is something that is both deeply challenging and deeply encouraging when I think about my life. It's deeply challenging because it reinforces what we said at the beginning, which is that the first and most important task that we have in this world is not our work 
or the stuff we have to do or our knowledge or our being on fire or whatever, the most important thing for us to do in this world is to experience the presence of God. Because that's the order Paul puts it in. He says, we with unveiled faces contemplate the glory of the Lord, and then that starts to transform us so that we shine with glory. You cannot, if you, if you jump past the first part of that process and just start trying to give off light without first being connected to the light of God's kingdom, it's just not going to work. So that's a challenge. But it's also an encouragement because it means that each one of us has access to a power and a glory beyond any of our imaginations. God dwells in us, and God is at work to show his glory through us. And that means that it doesn't matter who you are or what you're good at or what you struggle with, as you spend time with him and experience his power and love, his infinite divine power can begin to work through your life. If I could use one last image to illustrate that. As a kid, I used to start fires with a magnifying glass. And just to be clear, kids that are here, never do this, okay? And if you do it, you do it on a big slab of concrete far away from anything flammable with your parents' permission. But um, I also used to do this to bugs, and definitely don't do that, because as an adult, I'm kind of like... But, but you would take, you know, some little, like, dead pieces of grass or whatever, and you'd make a little pile, and then you'd shine a magnifying glass on them. And I remember, the, I read about this in a book, and when I first read about it, I'm like, that won't work. And I remember I went and got some little, like, tiny plastic magnifying glass from some, like, detective kit that I had. And I'm sitting outside, and I'm thinking, like, this is never going to work because, um, you know, because it's just this little plastic magnifying glass and this little dot of light. But sure enough, right, you sit there for a little while, and suddenly it starts to smoke. And then the, the flames start licking at those leaves. And the reason for that is because the whole thing works not because of the strength of the magnifying glass, but because of the strength of the sun. All that the magnifying glass has to do is open and let that shine through and focus through it, you know, its lens, but it's the sun, not this dinky little plastic thing I have that's actually starting the fire. Our calling in the world as Christians is not to be the sun, but it's to be the magnifying glass through which it shines. And the good news is that as we simply do that, as we take the time to open ourselves to God's light and let it shine into us, it will start to shine through us in a way that can change the world. That's the hope of this text. Let's pray. Father, you are great and glorious and good, and you are willing to use us, even though we are frail and feeble instruments, to shine the light of your glory pray that you would encourage our hearts and give us boldness as we go into the world, that we might show forth the light of your love. pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ.